Hey, welcome back. So today I want to take some time sort of shifting gears into a different topic, different set of topics that I that I uh, occasionally will discuss as part of my other podcast, and I want to dedicate sort of a podcast specifically to that. And you guys see the title of this video, Will the U.S. Go to War with North Korea and Iran? Now, of course, I'm talking and or Iran, uh, but are we going to go to war with them in 2020? Now, like I said, I'm, I'm taking, I'm shifting gears here, not so much talking about markets or precious metals. Obviously, whatever happens with these two countries in, in the future and, and whether or not the U.S. and the West goes to war with them is, is obviously going to have huge effect on precious metals and, and, and markets as a whole. Uh, but I more so want to just focus on the geopolitics of the situation. And, and to start off, I'll say this. I would say that the likelihood of the U.S. going to war with either of these countries in 2020 is fairly low. Maybe higher than it has in years past, particularly with Iran. Uh, the the situation with North Korea is is worsening uh, by the month. However, if we're going to go, you know, likely is it likely, which I would interpret as as greater than fifty percent, I would say no. There's a less than fifty percent chance the U.S. goes to war with either of these countries. I'm talking direct confrontation with their forces, which is an important distinction with Iran. Uh, direct confrontation between U.S forces, not contractors, but U.S. forces, and Iranian forces, not, not proxies, uh, less than a 50% chance. Now, with that being said, we're only talking for 2020. Do I think that war with North Korea or Iran is inevitable? No, I don't think wars are inevitable. You know, unlike when I talk about things like market crashes or, or destruction of the dollar and inflation or a move up in precious metals, you know, those things I see as, as pretty darn close to an inevitability. Now, it's just a matter of when, though. You know, if you're going to ask me, is 2020 going to be the year for a huge spike of inflation in, in the United States because of, of loss of, of respect, loss of confidence and, and money printing, uh, loss of confidence in the dollar? I'd say, you know, probably not 2020, but it's going to happen eventually, and and sort of the same thing with with Iran and North Korea, with the understanding that it's not necessarily inevitable an inevitable war with North Korea or Iran. Uh, but I do want to to divvy these two up. They are separate conversations with some common thread. Uh, common thread being the fact that they have historically had decent relations. They they have assisted each other in, in some ways, including. Uh, military technology and whatnot. And, of course, the common thread here is, is the United States and, and much of the West. Um, now, with with Iran, I mean, you, you have a very much different set of nations that the U.S. works together with to negotiate with or, or plan against, right? We're talking about uh, uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia being, being kind of at the top of that list, as well as some other Middle Eastern countries that historically have been more friendly to Israel which is not very many, but or Saudi Arabia or the United States, as well as to some extent European countries. Whereas with North Korea, uh, our two major people that, that we have to coordinate with are, are South Korea and Japan, and then, of course, China and, and Russia are on that list as well, uh, though they are sort of on the opposite side as us. But, but let's jump into this, right? Um, I, I think a good place to start would be to start off with Iran. Now, both of these countries. There's plenty of new developments with them in just the last week or so. But we'll start off with Iran. Now, it's it's been less than a year, I would say, since uh, relations with, with Iran has really further deteriorated. You know, this past summer was sort of the summer of 
uh, these these attacks on oil assets right you had some tankers that that were captured you had at least one or more than one that were attacked i forget how many at this point you also had saudi arabian uh oil refineries that were hit now even to this day i think much like with things like like the syrian uh, uh chemical weapons attack or, or many of others uh, um, attacks in in the Middle East, it's still a sort of undetermined origin exactly who it was that launched this attack on on Saudi Arabian oil facilities or or the oil tankers. You know, there's a little bit more clarity in terms of who captured some of the oil tankers. Uh, it, primarily, it's been been Iran, Iranian forces, uh, as well as uh, the United States and and the UK. Uh, we actually captured one in, in the Mediterranean Sea. Um, not far from from uh, Gibraltar, one of the UK's territories on on the southern tip of, of Spain. So we, we've both been kind of guilty of that. Uh, but but that was 2019, and as we head into 2020, you know, talks of those things happening, or at least uh, the, the actual physical act of those types of events, has has calmed down. Um, you, you see fewer headlines about the possibility of the uh, the 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 entire you know, straight of, of uh, Hormuz being shut down or attack on Saudi Arabia or oil tankers. Uh, with that being said, this war has sort of been ratcheting up on a different front. And that front is, unfortunately, the war-ravaged country of Iraq. And and that's sort of where, we at, where we're at at the turn of 2019 into 2020, uh, what's going on in Iraq. Now, this is why I said early on, you know, are we going to go to a war with Iran directly? Because it's an important distinction. Indirectly, we've been at war with Iran for, for many, many years. Because you have to understand that Iran has a proxy network, much like we have a, a proxy network, and they have allies in the region. So who are their allies currently? Uh, well, their their big one would be Syria um, and, and more recently they've been improving their relations with with Iraq which is may come as a surprise because you know you'd think Iraq you know that that government must be friendly to us since we were whatever the ones that saved them twice but no um not really how it works you know i think right now there's a big sense in Iraq that they're sort of sick i don't want to cast a broad stroke and make a broad generalization because obviously any country has has varying opinions on these types of things but but many are very upset with the US continuing to have such a large military presence in Iraq uh, into the the next decade right this is 17 years removed from the original toppling of the Saddam regime in 2003 uh and it's kind of getting long in the tooth at least that's, I imagine, many uh, Iraqi civilians and, and politicians and whatnot are sensing. So those are some of the big allies in the area. I mean, furthermore, they also are more so aligned with with Russia, which is obviously aligned with Syria. There's some other Gulf states, some other uh, regional allies uh, and foes and whatnot to, to discuss as well. But those are kind of the big ones. Um, and... What what's really been the the big problem most re- and so the reason I bring that up is that's kind of their network and, and and I should say in addition to those state allies they also have their proxy forces in the region you have various uh, militia forces and whatnot in in Iraq in in Syria in Syria you actually have elements of the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard and then in and then in uh, Yemen. Which, which Saudi Arabia is in the midst of a, a 
long drawn out war with uh, a very bloody war. Uh, the the you call them Houthi rebels. That's kind of what they're generally known as. They are essentially an Iranian proxy force as well. Now, with that being said, though, I mean, so so we're fighting oftentimes these militia. You know, in Iraq, we recently carried out a series of airstrikes on Iranian-backed militia, or at least allegedly Iranian-backed militia. Uh, we have funded a, you know, the, the SDF, the Syrian Defense Force, and, and various other groups in, in Syria, many of, of very much uh, terrorist origin and whatnot, to, to fight Iranian proxies or Iranian allies. Uh, but, but we haven't come into a direct confrontation with Iran quite yet. However, my my prediction with where things are heading right now, at least based on, on this past week, it, it would appear that this proxy conflict is unfortunately likely to continue. And I get it. You know, there's there's this idea of I don't know if utilitarianism is the right word, but but you know what is the maybe the lesser of two evils type of of an argument for why this proxy war is not a bad thing. Right, because it's not as bad, some people would say, as if the U.S. went toe to toe with Iran and and their allies. And I get it. I mean, something like that. It, once you once you draw in other countries like Russia into the conversation, uh, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and and their allies and enemies, you could potentially end up with a very large conflict, potentially a nuclear conflict at some point. And I get that. That that's that's scary. But this proxy war is is. I don't know, hardly any better because it's so drawn out and it's oftentimes the, the civilians that suffer in all of this and and oftentimes it's not even on Iranian soil or U.S. soil that this is taking place. Take A case in point would be Iraq where we've seen an increase in Iranian activity, Iranian-backed militias and whatnot. We decided to take action recently, carry out airstrikes on them in Iraq uh, and... And in response, there's this basically huge mob of people, with what I think New York Times referred to as mourners. Uh, maybe I guess you could you could twist that, but but ultimately it was a big mob of of uh, militiamen or or upset individuals and whatnot that basically stormed the U.S. embassy in, in Baghdad, um, knocked down I think a gate and and uh, it, it necessitated. I mean, if you haven't followed this in the last couple of days, necessitated. Uh, like a hundred Marines airlifted in. You had Apache helicopters flying overhead, and it's since calmed down somewhat. But in response to that, uh, the U.S. has has ramped up the amount of, of forces that they're going to have in the region. An additional 750 paratroopers will be deployed to the region immediately, according to uh, uh, John Esper or Mark Esper, uh, our current Defense Secretary. Um, with the possibility of an additional 4,000 paratroopers or some amount of that 4,000 paratroopers of the Division Ready Brigade also being deployed to the region. And that sounds like a lot. To put that in context, though, uh, we already have um, roughly 5,000 troops deployed to Iraq, as it stands, and 60,000 U.S. troops total deployed in, in the region split up in countries like Kuwait, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Bahrain. Military guys, you guys know where all the bases are in, in the Middle East, I'm sure, or most of them. Um, and that's 14,000 more than it was uh, almost a year ago, back in May. right? So things have been ramping up, and it would appear as though proxy war is inevitable. War with Iran, straight up, head-toe-to-toe -to -toe war, 
maybe not yet, but proxy war in the region certainly seems inevitable. Uh, to some extent, it, it never really ended. But, but it's likely that the U.S. is going to continue our operations in Iraq, potentially Syria, uh, potentially it could be helping out uh, Saudi Arabia with Yemen. And, and then it will be a question of will Trump respond to any potential attacks on U.S. forces as an attack by, by militia or by insurgents or rebels or whatever you want to call them, or is he going to treat it as an attack by Iran directly? Because then you have the possibility that we actually attack the, the actual you know, Iranian soil. So it's still up in the air, but, but I guess my conclusion, that's you know, my update for Iran, would be that war with Iran, I would still say, is unlikely. Direct confrontation between the U.S. and Iran, meaning that it's less than a 50% chance in 2020. However, the, the, a war, a, another proxy battle, another proxy war in the Middle East between U.S. and Iranian uh, uh, forces, and or, forces and or proxies is, is basically inevitable at this point. Uh, but moving on, let's, let's talk about North Korea. Uh, so North Korea, like I said, is, is, there's also been some, some new developments with North Korea in, in just the past uh, couple of weeks. So, so leading up to Christmas, Kim Jong-un, in response to, to really the United States not budging at all in our, our diplomacy, our negotiations, and, and what he viewed as sort of a standstill or to some extent a failure of, of talks with the United States, uh, warned that the U.S. would be receiving a, a gift on Christmas. And Christmas came and went, New Year's came and went, and there wasn't an ICBM launch, there wasn't any major missile launch, there wasn't uh, a nuclear test, anything like that. And so I think many people are left wondering, you know, what is this gift? Was that a big bluff? Is this actually coming? Um, and yet uh, Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, uh, actually recently gave his New Year's speech and, and you can actually, you know, see there's various analyses on this. I think I, the best analysis I get, I don't always agree with their conclusions in terms of what the U.S. and South Korea should do. But, but the best analysis on what North Korea is doing oftentimes can be found at 38 North, which is, uh, of course, referring to the 38th uh, parallel, the, the, the dividing line between the North and the South. And, uh, you know, reading through their analysis of this speech, which, by the way, this is crazy. How long is the State of the Union speech? Like an hour? Maybe an hour and a half? I mean, it's, it's lengthy. Allegedly, now we don't, I'm sure the upper echelons of our government have access to it, but we don't have access to the entire speech. But allegedly, Kim Jong-un's New Year's speech was seven hours long. I mean, that's incredible. But but anyways, it was certainly different than many in the past. And from what we do have of this speech... It's suggesting that North Korea is getting ready to uh, buckle in and, and, and get ready, I guess, for a, a long, drawn-out conflict and or confrontation with the West, signaling that their negotiations basically have fallen through. They're not working. Um, and, and Kim Jong-un is basically refocusing them and basically saying, like, look, this... This uh, diplomacy is, is not working, trying to get sanctions relief in order to, to improve our economy and, and whatnot is, is just not working. And basically, he's saying at this point that, look, going forward, we're going to focus on the economy, but we're also going to focus on military development, particularly 
their their strategic weapons. And so that brings us to this Christmas gift. What is this Christmas gift? And according to these experts, I mean, they all kind of agree that, yeah, it could be um, some of the various things that, that they have used in the past or have threatened to use in the past in terms of, of tests. They could be a, a, a nuclear, another underground uh, nuclear bomb test. It could be an ICBM test. Those would be kind of a, the, the, the most provocative uh, late Christmas gifts the West could receive. But, but in addition to that, they've also threatened to, uh, or, or they could potentially do like a short or medium intermediate ranged ballistic missile test, SCUD missile tests. Uh, and then additionally, they also have, have in the past reported that they have developed the technology to, to launch missiles from submarines, including nuclear tip missiles. So they could test something like that. However, what, what these experts are, are proposing is that it could be a little bit more um, subtle than that. And what they are proposing is that what he could be doing is that they could be giving us a gift in, in the form of, of intelligence. And, and what, what they mean by that is, or what I mean by that is, uh, that they have, we know that they have at least some element of ICBM technology. They've launched ICBMs in the past. I mean, there's it's still up in the air about whether or not they have uh, important components like a re-entry vehicle, um, if they've miniaturized a nuclear warhead so that it can actually fit on said ICBM, but they have the missile at least. And so what people are proposing they could do is that they could basically show us that, hey, look, this missile, in this case, the, the Huangsong-15, which was uh, one that they uh, had tested back in 2017, that could potentially hit the United States mainland, they could throw it out there on, on one of its mobile launchers um, where in a place where they know it would be seen by U.S. satellites. right? Showing to us that, hey, look, talks are over, talks are not working, we're deploying our missile, and, and not with the intention of using it necessarily at this point, but as a deterrent, no less than, than if the United States were to fly our B-52 off their shores or if we were to send a spy plane over their country or if we were to, to send a carrier strike group or two into the region. Nothing more than that, right? But, but a provocation nonetheless. But what's more important is the signaling that North Korea is, is, is really battening down the hatches, that they're getting ready for a drawn-out um, confrontation military or otherwise, with, with the West and, and with the United States, that what's going on right now in terms of talks have, have not happened, that they basically are done with. And so then it's just a question of, you know, when will this ultimately be escalated to a potential to a potential, potential war? I don't think North Korea wants a war at this point, but they also are preparing deterrence or preparing uh, various other means to, to strike back, right? Strategic weapons has kind of been the name of the game for them. Uh, most recently. So I, again, the, you know, a test could be coming up. I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, articles coming out about the uh, North Korea uh, showing through, you know, satellite imagery, uh, the deployment of their ICBMs uh, rather than just sitting in warehouses and whatnot. So what's really important, though, to understand <clears throat> was that with North Korea, uh, there's there's a lot that goes into this situation with North Korea that I think has much broader implications in terms of geopolitics than just Iran. I mean, Iran's big and all, but North Korea is is on the doorstep of both China and Russia, uh, historical enemies of the United States. 
and in many ways, you know, North Korea has been described as, as sort of their their guard dog, right? As as um, a deterrent against the West, because you know, some sort of a space between uh, uh, Russia, China, and the United States or South Korea, right? That the a buffer zone, if you will. And in the past, China in particular has has held a fairly tight leash on North Korea. Uh, North Korea hasn't really done a whole lot, as far as we know, at least supposedly, hasn't done a whole lot without China's blessing, including nuclear tests, ACPMs, and all that. And so what's really interesting is, is that as we head into 2020, we're really getting two conflicting storylines. On one hand, you have North Korea uh, leading, uh, certainly on the path to provoking the U.S. further uh, to to a, a, I guess, a resumption of, of what was the old kind of norm in terms of, of um, I don't know, strife between the U.S. and South Korea, Japan, and, and of course, North Korea. But then on the other hand, you have the U.S. and China working towards a trade deal. In fact, it's, it's supposed to be by the middle of this month, by the middle of January, that North Korea and, and, the, and the United States, or sorry, China and the United States will have some sort of a trade deal phase one signed. I mean, it's already been worked out, but they want it signed by the middle of the month. And so you have to wonder, you know, if if North Korea really does really get away with anything without China allowing it, and if North Korea is, is ramping up provocations of the West, simultaneously, China and the United States are apparently moving towards a trade deal, you know, somehow those things don't jive together well. And and this is, I think, so important to understand that that the U.S.-China relations, which are obviously even more important than U.S.-North Korea relations, you know, those things, the, our relationships with them extend just beyond something like a trade deal or just beyond, you know, whether or not we're friends with them. There's so many, so many secondary issues that we uh, have disagreeing opinions on, including the Korean Peninsula, uh, Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong, um, China's economic and, to some extent, uh, military expansion. Uh, certainly, some of their human rights abuses, I think, are going to continue to to uh, be brought up as as a reason why we should not have good ec- uh, good economic or or diplomatic relations with China. You know, plenty of reasons, uh, plenty of secondary issues are going on between the U.S. and, and China. North Korea is is one of those. And in many ways, North Korea has been a thorn in the side of the United States for many decades now. And so I wonder, you know, how much can U.S.-China relations improve with the backdrop of North Korea moving towards uh, further provocation of the West? Or conversely, how can North Korea be moving in that direction with a backdrop of improving U.S.-China relations? It's it's sort of one or the other, and, and it's... From my opinion, I don't think that – so there's really three possible outcomes here, right? That we all get along, we all don't get along, or uh, half and half. North Korea continues to worsen and China-U.S. relations improve. That's unlikely even though that's the current trajectory for my opinion. I think it's also unlikely that U.S. and China and U.S. and North Korea relations both improve. I think it's more likely that it's going to be headed in the opposite direction. That's the long-term trajectory. I think this most recent, you know, trade deal or or even some of the talks that seem like a distant memory now between the U.S. and, and North Korea, uh, those are 
that that's a uh, small move in the other direction. But but like anything, you know, these types of relations don't necessarily move in a straight line. But but the long term trajectory is towards worse worsening relations with, with between the U.S. and China, and and their allies. So I think that's that's where we're at right now, heading into 2020. Um, could a war break out on the Korean Peninsula? Well, I think as of right now, the odds of that happening are, are much lower than, than uh, some sort of major conflict in the Middle East, uh, primarily because of China and because of nuclear weapons. Iran, as we know, as far as we know, doesn't have nuclear weapons. They might, they might not. They certainly are, are close. But, but North Korea does. Uh, more importantly, China does. Uh, China's a huge um, superpower in the region. And and I don't see us going to war with North Korea without China allowing it or without China uh, throwing their support behind North Korea, uh, similar to, to the, the Korean War like 50 or 60 or 70 years ago. Uh, so that's sort of where we're heading. And uh, again, I think war is unlikely. Um, and I really hope that there isn't one, right? Because war like that would be terrible. Any war is bad, right? But that would be a terrible war in, in terms of the number of deaths that it could cause. However, looking beyond 2020, uh, obviously the election here in the United States will matter. Uh, the election of new governments in places like South Korea will matter and whatnot. And so I hope for change. I hope for peace on, on the Korean Peninsula, just like I hope for, for peace in, in the Middle East. However... I'm also a bit of a realist, and I, and I know that peace is, is fleeting in this world, and that inevitably I think this thing, this situation only gets worse. I'm not saying it's inevitable that we're going to go to war with them eventually, but what I'm saying is that 2020 we may not. There's still that small chance that's in the back of, of every, uh, I don't know, I'm sure every Korean's mind, every American's mind, every Chinese's, Chinese man and woman's mind, but... Going beyond 2020, I don't know. It, it certainly seems that we're still on a collision course with Korea, with with Iran, uh, to some extent with China. So, as always, I ho- uh, let me know down below in the comment section if you enjoyed this type of a podcast today. Uh, a bit of an update as well as just sort of my opinions on, on these types of things. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts otherwise on, on North Korea and on Iran. Which, how should the U.S. deal with them? And, and do you see a war coming up here? with them in 2020 or not. Um, and finally, as I've said many times in my past podcasts, uh, for those of you still on YouTube, which is at this time a bulk of my audience, I'm trying to get as many of you guys to switch over to my podcast as possible. I'm talking away from YouTube and onto podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, uh, Stitcher, Podbean, you know, the list goes on and on. Uh, I'll put a link down below in the comment section. But the reason I'm doing this is is a couple different reasons. I'll explain real quickly for those of you that maybe haven't heard yet. Uh, first of all, this is a podcast. It's not a, it's not a YouTube channel. I mean, it's a YouTube channel, but but there's no visuals, right? It's just audio, and that's not going to change anytime soon, for for time reasons and just because this is primarily just me talking. I mean, uh, but but. Beyond that, I'm also sort of sick of, of YouTube and their actions to, I, I don't want to say restrict free speech. I mean, it's restrict free speech. It is. I mean, they're a platform, and I think that they have the right to do that. But it doesn't mean that we have to put up with it, right? It's their own platform. They can restrict whatever they want. 
but it doesn't mean we have to put up with it. And what I mean by that is that right now my channel is not banned, my videos aren't being taken down, they're not even being demonetized, whereas they have been in the past. However, my channel and so many others in the past have been hit with what people have deemed as, as a shadow ban. And what that means is that here on YouTube, you you survive and thrive based on merit, at least in theory. Okay, there's more to it than that, but merit, meaning views, likes, comments, subscription, and ultimately watch time and viewer retention. That's what drives traffic to YouTube, and that's what YouTube rewards. And so the way they reward that is by recommending your successful videos to other people and recommending your channel to other people. And, that, and that's how you grow on YouTube is to be recommended ultimately. However, as much as it is merit-based, they do occasionally do sort of this shadow ban thing where they will uh, recommend certain videos, certain creators' channels less. It's not necessarily because of declining performance. I mean, my channel has has seen a lot of support over the years, over the months, uh, pretty good watch time and all that, not a whole lot of change. And, and I always try and strive to, to create better and different content and all that. But there's been periods in time where my views will just drop off a cliff. Even though I'm talking about what should be popular subject matter uh, uh, across this, this population of, of precious metals enthusiasts or market enthusiasts or what have you. Just drops off a cliff. And, and yeah, maybe it's nothing. But, you know, I've, I've heard many, I even had so many comment, you know, in the past that Silver Fortune is part of, of this shadow ban on YouTube that he doesn't get suggested my, my podcast or my videos anymore, right? And, and I'm sort of sick of dealing with that. And that's why I want to move to podcasts more so than YouTube. I'm not leaving YouTube, um, but I want to get as many of you guys away from YouTube as possible. There's plenty of other great podcasts out there as well. I mean, you can do both, but I'd prefer that you start listening to mine on a podcast platform. So there's a link below in the description to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Um, and, and if you want to know where your money is going right now, it's split between me and YouTube in terms of ad revenue. YouTube, Google, they, they get the money for this view today along with, with myself. If you're switching to my podcast, even if you're listening on Google Podcasts, as far as I know, Google doesn't get a penny. Instead, it's split between me and Anchor, which is the uh, podcast platform that I use to, to host my platform, which ultimately is owned by Spotify. You know, a large, I guess a fairly large corporation, but not a corporation like YouTube, which which consistently carries out things like shadow bands and whatnot. And and, and, and what's even better than that is, is that as of right now, the podcast platform is, is a much better place for for free speech because I think a lot of platforms just have been unwilling to crack down on it to the extent that YouTube has. I mean, YouTube has so many tools today. I've, I, I fully expect today's video to be demonetized. I mean, I have war, Iran, and North Korea in the title. I mean, that's, that's a no-brainer. But I and many people other suspect that YouTube will even go so far as to... Uh, screen the the closed captions that they create for videos for potential bad words and opinions and thoughts right and so if i'm talking about gosh i don't know second amendment rights i don't know if that's one a flag a red flag comes up for that but i would certainly suspect some other ones like 9-11 uh 9-11 truthers uh 
uh, jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein's suicide. You know, I'm just giving all sorts of keywords for, for YouTube right now to, to crack down on and say, like, we don't want this channel to succeed. So I, I probably just lost, like, thousands of future viewers in just the span of a couple seconds there by saying those words. I could be wrong, but but YouTube does use closed captions to some extent for, for ranking videos, for figuring out what videos are about. So why not use it also to determine whether or not they're on your shadow ban list of, of bad ideas and bad words and bad topics, right? Who knows? But that's certainly my experience, and it's been the experience of many other YouTubers. So my solution at this point is to move as many of you guys away from YouTube to podcast format. By the end of January, I'm shooting for 700 listeners on average per day. 700. Currently, I'm at just shy 450 over the last week. So it's a bit of a goal, but but I think I can do it. I've already seen a lot of people switch over just in the past couple of weeks. So I'm just waiting for you to do the same. But as always, I'll, I'll let you guys get on with your day. As always, thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for tuning in to today's podcast, and God bless. <laughs>